All right, good morning, everybody. We are finishing the book of Mark today, so we're going to bring the house lights up. And if you have a Bible with you or if your phone, you can turn to the very end of the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be looking at the end of chapter 15 uh, and then uh, all of chapter 16. A lot of times in your Bibles, there might be a note after verse 8, and the note after verse 8 would say that there's an extended ending in Mark, which includes a lot of the material that's in Matthew. Uh, But over time, as we've done more archaeology and we've seen more of the original manuscripts that go back closer and closer to the time of the apostles, uh, those earliest manuscripts do not include a longer ending to Mark. Uh, So whether you read it or not, or you preach on it or not, isn't really an issue because that material is covered in the other gospel accounts of the resurrection. But it doesn't appear to be original To Mark. And so I'm going to begin at verse 39 in chapter 15, if you're following along. Uh, And this is the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. When the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is God's word. The opening line, I think, is so important. The opening line says, when the centurion saw how Jesus died, he said, surely this man is the son of God because of how he died. He's not talking about the crucifixion. As a Roman centurion, he's very familiar with crucifixion. He's talking about how he endured it, how he died. 
Uh, what was he like as he was dying? Was it because at the trial he didn't defend himself? Was it because during the torture he didn't fight back? Was it because he was dying? As he was dying, he continued to pray for the crowd that was shouting at him and spitting at him. He even prayed for their forgiveness as they were hurting him. This centurion had seen many crucifixions before, including some that involved probably innocent people. But this one was different for him. Not just different. I mean, how many times have you met someone and thought, you know what? Surely that person is the son of God. Never, right? We never say that. Uh, But same for the centurion until that Friday. He never said that about anybody, especially anybody on a cross. And it's all because of how he died. Look at the three people, or maybe I should say the three classes of people uh, that the death of Jesus brings together. You have a Roman centurion who's a pagan. Uh, you have the women followers of Jesus. Uh, they're the only ones that stay with Jesus the whole time. And then you have Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jewish people, the council who sentenced Jesus to death and handed him over to Pilate. Women, a pagan, and a Pharisee. Three groups of people that don't usually hang out together. And yet, this event has brought them together. At the end of all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the climactic scenes of the end of Jesus' life, his death, his burial, and the resurrection, let me just come right out and say this. The male disciples of Jesus in every account, they vanish. They vanish. Peter, James, just nowhere to be found. Uh, They're not around. They're despondent. They're behind locked doors, hiding. The only followers who are with them, and therefore they witness the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, are his female followers. The men disappear. And the women dominate the final part of the narrative of Jesus' life. Now, this is extremely interesting, and let me tell you why. In both Jewish and Roman culture at that time, legally speaking, women's testimony had no legal status. Which means, ladies, if something happened to you, you couldn't testify in court that it happened to you. You needed a man to do it for you for it to have any legal status. Your evidence could not even be brought up in court. No legal status. Why? Because there was a universal understanding across all all cultures of the ancient world. They all believed that women were inferior and unreliable. And ladies, if you ever find yourself dating that kind of man, run fast. (laughs) Run fast. And yet, in spite of all that, at the most crucial moment in the history of salvation, God trusts this group of women with the whole story. They're almost the lifeline of the gospel. Nobody else knows what's going on. But the women 
They see it. For decades, the only disciples who can actually say, I witnessed it. I saw him die. I saw him buried. And I saw him alive again were women. God made these women his witnesses at a time in history in which no other society would have trusted them, which should tell you all you need to know about God. And it should tell you how much change needed to happen in that social structure and in many social structures today around the world. I know we live in a progressive society that values all life, or we're supposed to. But in so many other cultures in this world today, they still don't even get this. They don't even get the rights of women as being fully human. But God does. And some of that change began in a remarkable way with another person in the story, Joseph of Arimathea. He had a change too. He's a part of the Sanhedrin, that's the ruling class. And the text says he went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Mark tells us that Joseph was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, and that's a word for power. He was a powerful member of the Sanhedrin, not just a member, he was a prominent one. And John's gospel even shares more detail about this as well. It says that Joseph was a friend of a man named Nicodemus, another rich member of the Sanhedrin. And John says together that they cared for and buried Jesus' body in Joseph of Arimathea's family tomb. Now, the Roman centurion, he's an enemy of the Jews. He's an idol worshiper. He's a pagan. And he is leading soldiers that are keeping the Jews in some ways captive in their own country. He represents Rome and Roman power and Roman military. So the women, they're marginalized in their ancient society, but Joseph and Nicodemus, they're different. They're the consummate insiders. You have a group of outsiders, and then you have these two insiders. They're aristocrats. They're wealthy. The others, though, are outsiders. It's a big deal to have two members of the Sanhedrin responding to Jesus in faith. And I would argue we can already see the changes happening in their faith in this story. First of all, you have the word boldly. Always pay attention to words like that. They are getting a courage that they didn't have before. Joseph went boldly to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and asked for the body. This took a lot of courage. The Romans had just tried Jesus. They found him guilty of high treason. Their own Sanhedrin found him guilty of blasphemy. And now Joseph and Nicodemus, for the first time, are willing to say out loud what they've been doing in secret. They were secret followers of Jesus. They liked him. They followed him. But they didn't want anybody to know. But now, at the end of the story, when it's really dangerous, they're willing to risk everything 
to honor him and to bury him. This is horribly, horribly risky. See, Nicodemus is no longer Nick at night, only meeting with Jesus when nobody can see him. That's in John chapter 5. He met him in secret because, well, Nicodemus' power was too important to him. But he wanted to ask Jesus about the kingdom. And Jesus says, you have to be born again to enter my kingdom, which is so radical. He's talking to a Pharisee, a religious expert, a Bible teacher. He's saying, you have to start at zero. Nothing you've done is of any benefit to you. Nothing you've achieved gets you any closer to my kingdom. And that's weird because I'm sure Nicodemus and Joseph would have said, well, okay, maybe like prostitutes or thieves, maybe they have to be born again, but you know, they have to start from ground zero. But, but for us, Jesus, we've done a little bit. I mean, what do you mean be born again, Nicodemus asks him. Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter what your status has been in this world, whether you're a prostitute or a Bible teacher or even a Roman soldier. Everyone needs to be saved radically by grace. You're all on the same footing. You're all in the same place. You can only be saved by radical grace. Why? See, I'm sure Nicodemus didn't understand. I'm sure Joseph would not have understood. But you see, here's what Jesus is saying, and here's what we've been trying to say to you the entire time that we've been walking through the book of Mark. There are two ways to be saved. You can save yourself. You can earn it. Or you can let Jesus save you. Either effort or grace. You can try to keep all rules. You can try to avoid every sin, but it always catches up to you. Or you can follow the one who promises to save you. And now at his death, they're finally able to grasp it. Their attitude towards their own power and status, it's changed. Now they're using their power to do the right thing but they're also jeopardizing their power. But they're not just getting more bold, they're getting more humble. See, taking care of that body would have been a real mess. Go read in the other Gospels the amount of torture and blood that would have been involved. I mean, Jesus' body would have been a mortician's nightmare. It's safe to say that they would have been the only members of the Sanhedrin to ever have touched a dead body. But they are no longer focused on their past or their past reputations. They now follow the one who humbled himself to be born in flesh and to give his life as a ransom for many. So yeah, they're not focused on the past anymore. And neither should we. When Jesus says he has forgiven you and he has prepared a future for you, a place for you in heaven, it's time that we let our baggage go too. Or to quote Jelly Roll, 
I want to tell you that the windshield is bigger than the rear view mirror for a reason. Because what's in front of you is so much more important than what's behind you. It's so true, and I've so been wanting to quote Jelly Roll in church, <laughs> but it's so darn hard. You know, one interesting point from the end of Mark, three times in eight verses, Mark writes down the names of these women. Three times in eight verses, Mark, you're being a little bit repetitive. He wrote down the names over and over again of the women who saw Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Why the redundancy? Because this has all the marks of the way historians did history in those days. Ancient historians gave more credence to the oral histories of living eyewitnesses. They were more valuable than written documents. Why? Because if the eyewitnesses were still around, you could cross-examine them. You could compare what they're saying with others. These are citations. What Mark was saying by putting their names down was he was saying, if you want to check out whether what I'm telling you is right, go talk to these women. See, he's, he's not writing a legend. This is not how legends were written down. I don't know if you've heard of Celsus, but he was a Greek pagan philosopher who lived about 80 years or so after the life of Jesus. And he was very, very down on Christianity. And he wrote a number of books trying to refute Christianity. He didn't like it. And he gave all his reasons why it couldn't be true. But do you know what his strongest argument was against Christianity? He says it can't be true because the accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. In fact, he says, we all know that women are hysterical. He writes, not me. And everybody else in the ancient world would say, yeah, that's a problem. That was an incredibly strong argument in those days. So what's your point in telling me this, Pastor Jim? I'm glad you asked. It means if Mark was making this thing up, he would have never put women as the key eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. That would be a mistake. See, the only possible reason to explain women in these accounts is because that's what actually happened. They witnessed the death of death. And this was what the event, this is the event that changed the world. And Peter tells Mark exactly how it happened because he wasn't there, but the women were. Peter probably even admitted, you know what? I was the biggest screw up of them all. He couldn't stay awake in the garden to pray with Jesus. Jesus had to wake him up three times. Then he denied knowing Jesus three times. And then he was hiding behind locked doors when Mary told him the news. Surely Jesus would have no use for Peter anymore. 
But Jesus told him specifically, he says, I have loving plans for my disciples. And that means you too, Peter, you jerk. And this is so theologically profound because his screw up was the biggest, but his repentance would also be the deepest. And his grasp of grace will be the greatest. And that will make him the most qualified person to be a leader in the Jesus movement. It's why Jesus wanted St. Paul as well. Yes, you messed up. Even a murderer of fellow Christians. And Paul, that's why I want you, because when I forgive you, you'll get it. And people will see it in you. See, this is really weird. That, that's not the way the world works. But it's the way the kingdom of Jesus works. Religion understands that salvation is by strength. I'm saved if I'm good. I'm saved if I'm moral. I'm saved to the degree that I live up to the standards. That's religion. But Jesus says, no, 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 you've got God all wrong. Salvation comes when you admit that you're weak and when you admit your inability and when you admit you need a savior. It's why we out loud confess our sins here every week. If you let your failure drive you deeper into the gospel, it becomes resurrection. You see your own flaws, but you also see how infallibly and infinitely and endlessly that you are loved and what that means. It makes you humbler and bolder at the same time. Nothing else does that. See, the resurrection proves that God doesn't want to just save souls with bodies. He doesn't want to just save the spiritual. He saves the physical. That God must hate disease. God hates poverty. God must hate hunger. He must hate death. And because he hates them, the resurrection proves that he does. Mark 16 marks the death of death. I remember one of the first funerals I ever did. Um, it's about 20 years ago. Um, Esther was 98 years old. And if you're going to have a a happy funeral, usually it's for the 98-year-olds. And, um, and hers was supposed to be uh, one of those. Uh, it, but like most Christian funerals, of course, there was mourning and there was grieving and there were tears because you're going to miss them. But there's also celebrating at a Christian funeral because that person could not be happier because they're now in heaven with the Lord. Um, but her son, he made it very clear to me. He said, this funeral needs to be a celebration, and I want you, pastor, to make it fun. Um, I said, okay. So I decided to tell a funeral joke, which is usually a bad idea. <laughs> but Esther would have liked it. Um, do you want to hear it? Okay. But don't judge, because I'm admitting in the beginning this is a bad preacher joke. Okay, here we go. Uh, a very elderly man who had formerly lived in town had died in another state. Uh, the funeral was held where he now lived, but the burial was to be back home. 
The funeral home called the young preacher and asked him to have the graveside service. The burial was to be at an old country church cemetery several miles out of town. Uh, The funeral director explained that since he hadn't lived in town for years and years, he had no family in the area, and likely there might be very few friends there, perhaps nobody at all. He told the, the preacher, if you could just say a few words of scripture and a short prayer, that would be fine. Uh, So the young preacher didn't expect anyone else to show up except the funeral home people and the cemetery workers. But when he was on his way to this very unfamiliar cemetery at a a church very far off in the country, the young preacher got lost, as we often do. He drove around and around the area. He grew more and more nervous as the scheduled time for the service came and went. But finally, he saw a little church with a cemetery. Um, Sure enough, he could see that three men had shovels. They were standing beside a pile of dirt at the edge of the little cemetery behind the church. The hearse was nowhere in sight. He figured, oh man, the funeral director, he gave up on me. So he quickly, he got out of his car and he walked up to the grave and he said to the workman, I see you've already buried the vault. Um, Let's pause Just let me say a a few words and pray before you finish filling in the grave. Workmen all removed their hats, and he began the service. And afterwards, one of the workmen smiled, and he said, Preacher, I don't know who you are, but that's the best funeral service for a septic tank I've ever (laughs) heard. Bad preacher joke. (laughs) And luckily, that's what happened at Esther's funeral as well, because it was a Christian funeral, and so it was also a celebration. We planned this series on the Gospel of Mark so that you would know the life and teachings of Jesus, like really know it. So why did Mark and Matthew and Luke and John even bother to write this down in the first place? And why is Christianity the biggest faith system in the world by far? Because something happened. In Mark chapter 16 is the key. Jesus rises from the dead. This is the only reason Mark even bothers to tell the story. This is the only reason each of the disciples is willing to go to death, is willing to face martyrdom, is because Jesus rose from the dead. And we need to tell the world, people you care about don't know where they're going to spend eternity. People you care about don't know Christ. Pray for them and start now. What about you? Do you believe it really happened? Or is it just a symbol? Can you imagine the preachers of the early church, the disciples, going out to the cities, to villages, and preaching to all the poor, preaching to the slaves, which they did? But what if they just said this? Let me tell you about the resurrection of Jesus Christ It didn't really happen, but it's a wonderful symbol of how good triumphs over evil. So let's just try to be nice to each other. 
And can you imagine the slaves and the poor of the city saying, this is just what I needed to lift me up out of my life of grinding poverty and oppression. Let's be nice to each other. No, they wouldn't say that, and the preachers wouldn't preach that, because Easter as a symbol has no power over death. Here's what the disciples said. He died. But three days later, we saw him, we touched him, we ate with him, and so did hundreds more. But the women were there first, and it's embarrassing to us. But he rose, and that means into this broken, messed up world, the power of God has come. And someday, Jesus is going to put everything right, because what does we say at Easter around here, Messiah? When I say Christ is risen, you say, he is. Hallelujah, he is. He is risen indeed. Father, we ask that you would help us to take Easter into the center of our lives and let it change us.